how do you advise a team like that to first start looking at at optimizations and design patterns and 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 gas golfing? I would I guess start with just asking for their story, like understanding what they care about. Because as a developer, it's easy to sort of be in a box where uh, there is a right answer and the wrong answer. And, you know, you just need to pick the right answer. And it's obvious. In life, things are more complicated. Like I advise some projects uh, where they're like, hey, Winter, please, you know, build us a contract. We'll pay you whatever you want. And, you know, this is the things. And as I explored their story and understood their use cases better, I actually advise them not to hire me, but to use this contract builder thing that already exists. But the first thing that I look always is um, actually two things. One is an, an embarrassing story and another one is more practical. The, the first embarrassing thing is at, the, at, at some point when you create a hard hat um, project, its default settings don't enable um, optimizer in Solidity. So that's how I built my first project and I was instantly hit with some size limits and some insane gas costs and I spent too many days trying to address them until I figured out that I actually didn't have optimizer on. So that would be the first thing to turn on and, and, and let them know that, hey, this, this needs to be turned on. And then the second thing, which is way more practical and, and common, is looking at the storage. Um, storage has this trade-off. It's the most expensive thing on Ethereum, but it's also a very convenient thing. So um, there is also no right or wrong answer. You have to understand what they care about storing and what they don't care about storing and kind of create... Um, clever and, and, and smart ways of using that space. So, uh, you know, very simple thing is like if they store a bunch of data about a token, let's see if we can pack this data into something that is much smaller, right? Using tight structs uh, and, and bit shifts and stuff like that. Um, another thing is um, seeing which data can live off chain. So maybe you don't need to store, like, for example, the Merkle tree, right? Like you don't need to store all the list of addresses, you just need to store the root of it. And then you can use cryptography to prove that this thing is part of that thing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Winter, a former engineer at Facebook, now Meta, who dove headfirst into smart contract development. Winter has been prolific on Twitter and in his Web3 development journey so far. He's worked on projects for the, the nouns and loot communities, and he's also produced a lot of really, really interesting projects of his own, including Runes of Ethereum, ERC-1155U, and Hotchain SVG. In this episode, we talk about the benefits of building in public, gas optimization, innovating in NFTs, and how to succeed as an honest builder in Web3. Winter is legit. And if you're looking for a podcast to take your mind off of all the mania that's happened in crypto throughout the last week, this episode will do that for you. Winter brought myself and Josh back to uh, this mindset of just building. And it, it's, it was honestly really inspiring for us. So if you're looking for uh, a little bit of inspiration, this episode will give you that. It'll give you that respite from the mania. And I think you'll enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and uh, let us know what you think. I hope you enjoy. Are you a DAO or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money 
by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 10 years in the future. When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get on to the episode. All right. So we are here today with Winter. Welcome. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Yes. Thanks so much for being here. People on Twitter were excited about this conversation, which was kind of fun. Uh, we're going to dive into several of your projects, uh, your, your new EVM course, your thoughts on Solidity development and just development in general. Uh, you've been you've been doing this for a little while. You, you've had some experience in, in Web2 as well. So I'm curious to go deep on some of that stuff. But before we, we do that, I'd love to ask you how you got involved in crypto. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I learned about Bitcoin in around 2012-ish, uh, right as I was graduating um, a university. But at the time, it just... Uh, like, I didn't see any value in that beyond speculation. So it was kind of a fun technological achievement. And I think I played with a video card trying to mine it, and then I discarded it. But um, that was my first sort of introduction into the concept. And then I basically ignored the field for, you know, nine years. Uh, up until summer last year, a friend reached out to me and he was interested in building an NFT. And he was like, hey, Winter, can you help me um, write a smart contract for this thing? And I looked at similar projects and opened them on Etherscan, went to the source code, and I was just blown away. I was like, wow, this is, this is much different and much better than I expected it to be. It has so many cool things. It has this programming model inside of it. It has consensus on top of it. So everybody knows what the latest state is. And overall, I was just fell in love in that model and couldn't give it up. So I um, helped my friend with the NFT project and then kind of had an idea for another one. And then as I was exploring the space, I had basically exponential explosion of these ideas and things I wanted to build. So yeah, that's that's how I got started. Nice. And so, I mean, you've obviously, I mean, you, you followed your interests, right? But it seems like most of your work has been concentrated around NFTs. Uh, and I love how you've been pushing the boundaries, not, not just like copy pasting ERC 721s different places, but you've really been an innovator with NFTs. What, what were some of the first NFT projects you you worked on? Or maybe if, if there was something before uh, some of the in, NFT stuff you did, I'd love to hear about that as well. Yeah, I think NFTs just kind of clicked with me. Is um, I, I think overall the society kind of comes to understand what they are. The coins were 
pretty obvious, like they are one-to-one mapping with, you know, your regular currency. So it was kind of easy to get the idea. But NFTs, I feel like for most people, they just didn't make sense. We had all these jokes about, you know, right-clicking um, uh, JPEGs and, and stuff like that. But to me, it made a lot of sense. To me, it's like, hey, you know, there is a storage. It, it records who owns what. Each object is distinct. And then you can do stuff with the objects. And then it, it's not just the registry. It's like a dynamic code that decides who owns what. So in my case, I saw kind of interesting things you could do with it. And yeah, like basically I spent most of my time in the NFT, I guess, space. Um, the first project was kind of simple. It was a generative art piece. To me, it seemed like a really cool application of the technology because you have an algorithm that produces some uh, image and then you have blockchain decide sort of the seed of that image. And that seed is kind of um, embedded in the token itself. And um, you cannot change it, you can trade it, etc. And to me, there was something magical about it. It's like also having a limit on capacity, like many people have complaints about, you know, it being scarce or not scarce. But to me, that is like the algorithm works in a way that like there could be no more than this many items forever. And nobody with any administrative privileges, not even Vitalik, can go in and change that. And there was something magical and novel about this that really fascinated me. So. The first NFT project was Geoms. It was a um, generative art collection. And then um, we kind of uh, wanted to do more of these. And I started looking into gas optimizations because the Ethereum price was high and the sort of the gas prices overall in the market were very high. So it's like, hey, you know, what um, what goes into the gas price, etc. And it kind of, it's, um, I embarked on this deep dive, understanding how things work why this is more expensive than that and you know i never stopped so that that's that's where i'm now nice yeah so you worked i think at meta before that that's <laughs> correct right yeah i spent like eight years there yeah nice nice was anything when you you know coming from you know meta and more traditional big tech was anything difficult for you to wrap your head around when you got into the evm and some of these things relating to to blockchains themselves or was it pretty easy to just get your head around the mental model? Yeah, that um, that's a great question. I think it was really straightforward. It's like just reading about that, um, reading the source code, it immediately clicked. Like I know exactly what's going on. I have a mental model of, of how these things work. And those are not, you know, um, those are not Urbit or any other sort of more sophisticated piece of technology. This is, um, you know, it was kind of very straightforward. The off-putting part was like the media cycle at the time was very anti-crypto and anti-NFT and, you know, this is all ridiculous. And then you have all the stories of people who, you know, bought random things and now they're like super rich or people who invested all their life savings into a thing and now they're super poor. And all of that layer was kind of, you know, you, you had to be consciously um, correcting your bias um, towards just ignoring that noise and looking at the core of the technology. But once you look at the core of the technology, it's actually really cool. And, and I feel like it's really sound and it solves the problems um, that haven't been solved before. So um, I, I feel like that experience in, in big tech helped me recognize that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's definitely been a polarizing thing. You said at the, at the time, the news cycle is kind of negative on crypto. I think it's, it still is right now, if, if not more so. Um, so, okay, you, you obviously, you, you did jump into the EVM though. And I'm sure there was maybe a little bit of a learning curve when it comes to the gas optimization stuff. Uh, what was it like for you just learning about the EVM and deep diving 
into the Ethereum virtual machine? Yeah, so um, at first, you know, I got started as everybody else with Solidity, and that was the high level programming language you use. And I feel like it's great. It, it has some of the defaults that um, are not present in other programming languages, like, you know, there is no memory allocation, it treats unallocated values as zeros, and a bunch of other sort of decisions that are actually very well tailored towards banking applications or these distributed finance applications. And, um, you know, with the time, I was like, I mentioned that I looked at my initial minting code and I was like, why is this expensive? Why does this require so much gas? And that required kind of digging deeper a little bit and looking at like what I, what it actually does while well, it stores values. And then I would look at, hey, the storage is actually very expensive. And at the time, it was hard for me to calculate, but I started building this intuitive model. And with time, sort of layer by layer, I kind of get deeper and deeper. Uh, it wasn't like I wasn't from the day one set up to understand it full stack, right? Like, so every time um, I build a project, uh, this project has a surface area and that surface area touches a bunch of things. And each of these things can be explored further. So I would build another project that uses that um, and I would learn about other things. So for example, uh, as part of my investigation to the gas stuff, I built a tool that takes a transaction and logs every single operation it does plus its gas cost and plots it in small like histogram saying like these operations took this much. And that to me was an extremely valuable lesson. I was like, oh, hey, you know, I'm seeing how, you know, I can add a bunch of unchecked here and there, but the core gas issue is because I'm storing so much data. And that sort of loops back to me having to think about how do I lay out my storage or how do I, you know, um, refactor this contract to put a bunch of data off chain instead of on chain and stuff like that. So um, it was always constant loop and every time I would um, dig deeper and deeper. And then what brought me, I guess, to the actual EVM implementation was that um, I have this wild dream of running Solidity in your browser uh, for, and I can expand on that as well. It started as a meme. It's like, hey, you know, React is is old school. Let's, let's rewrite everything in Solidity. Um, but it actually has a lot of interesting implications and use cases. So um, I tried using the EVM implementation from the Ethereum Foundation, but that one actually is pretty big and, you know, fitting it into the browser is not the sort of the most pleasant task. So, and I also wanted to extend it in some ways. So I started kind of thinking about um, implementing my own and then diving deeper, reading yellow paper and stuff like that. So, you know, there was never a spot where I had this path figured out it was always kind of exploratory iteration and, and digging deeper and deeper. Okay, holy shit. So it, we're gonna have to come back to this this uh, solidity in the browser thing because we need to pull on that thread. Um, but one, th one thing I wanna ask, and this is, I guess, an observation, but it seems to me that people that have gotten really good at understanding the EVM and specifically really good at like gas golfing have found a way to build in a tight feedback loop to their process of iterating and 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 learning what's gonna, what's gonna save gas and what's not, right? And I think... Mm -hmm. Josh actually might be a good person to ask this question because he's done the same thing. But, you know, I, and I guess before I even ask a question, Josh, you've done that, right? You, you've tried to make the feedback loop for testing things with the EVM very tight. Right? That, am, am I correct in assuming that's part of your process? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that, like, you, you wish more people understood uh, when it comes to, like, beginning to iterate with the EVM? I think you mentioned histograms in there, but is there any other tooling or useful 
like tips you have for people that want to begin uh, optimizing things in terms of gas? Yeah, I mean, the, the number, I guess, number one and two, you know, tools here, are definitely Remix and EVM.codes. Um, I say Remix because, you know, you can write uh, sort of high level Solidity and you get a lot of nice uh, support in there. And like you can really start, you know, stepping through instructions and it shows you where you are, you know, in the Solidity code. Now, EVM.code supports this to, to sort of a lesser degree. Um, and I definitely don't think, you know, Remix should be your last stop, right? Like it's it's very much like a, a sort of like toy um, area to, to play with this, right? But um, yeah, I think it's it's a really good place to experiment with the high level. And then when you want to get into like the the extreme low level and like, you know, what happens if I like, um, you know, what, what happens if I if I just M load at some arbitrary point in memory, like how does that work? What does the gas do? Things like that. I think EVM.codes is really like, I, I don't know anywhere better to try that, right? Because out of everywhere, everywhere else with a debugger, like there's nowhere else that I can just jump to it and just write, you know, push one OXOO and I can just execute that immediately, right? So... I think those two are definitely like the the top two. I'd I'd love to see that histogram though, and and play around with that a bit. And and on your on your solidity in the browser, I actually think that's where I originally found your work because I was like, man, this is cursed, but this is so cool. You know, it's <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So tell us tell us a little bit about the uh, the solidity in the browser idea. You know, I, I used to use, it started as a meme, but like, how feasible is this? Yeah, this is pretty feasible. I had a demo of, of this working with the Ethereum's, uh, Ethereum uh, Foundation's implementation. Um, so I guess the basic idea is like, why, why would you even want to do this? And um, here's my pitch for that. Um, and I've sort of found it maybe a little after I initially came up with the idea. So, you know, there is no casual um, relationship here. But um, one thing that... Uh, You've you've probably seen Etherscan, for example, for a contract. It gives you a UI, right? Like it knows the ABI of your contract. It knows which functions it exports. So it can build you an interface, uh, allowing you to interact with the contract. And to me, that whole idea is very appealing. It's like the contract itself is permissionless. It, you know, it doesn't know or care about what UIs are built for it. Uh, you could use Uniswap from any UI from the co- terminal from from anything, right? And and, and that's a big beauty of it. And, but I feel like these tools, and I've seen many, many of them, uh, they kind of hit this um, ceiling where they can show you the UI, but then it's still not useful. It's still not good enough, right? Like you cannot build Uniswap UI just based on ABI of the contract. You, you know, you just can't. Um, but if you wanted to kind of build the Uniswap UI for, for a Uniswap pool, you would have to, you know, take on all of this technological complexity. You know, there is React, there is um, Wagmi and a bunch of other libraries, Connect Kits and, and Rainbow Kits and things to connect your wallet. And it's just massive, right? Like it's, this infrastructure is massive. And I know this, I, I worked on React from, you know, pretty much day one when it was released and I loved React, but I feel like it's an overkill for, for some of the use cases, especially when you take into account all the tooling that comes with it. Like, it's, it's just a lot of complexity. So my pitch for running EVM in the browser is building UIs for contracts that are more complicated than just, you know, call this function or, or press mint, right? But that are not complicated enough that need a whole bunch of React code uh, on top. So, um, you know, you can imagine a Solidity file where you write your uh, UI logic that says like take input from this place, you know, 
multiplied by this um, token price and then create this router um, sort of array and then pass this router to the Uniswap exchange and then, you know, get these things back, etc. And um, I feel like that that's a niche that this tool would be very useful for, uh, building these UIs that are, um, you know, in the middle medium complexity side. And then there is another cluster of things, which is dynamic NFTs. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, my headspace is, is NFT space. Um, and I constantly think about the applications and implications of this technology. And I feel like Ethereum kind of stalled on this. Like Ethereum is great at um, this innovation. The, you know, NFTs first appeared on Ethereum um, in, in the widespread um, sort of sense. And the programming model allows you to build this NFTs from the first place. But um, you know, things like Solana, for example, now they raise some money to build X NFTs, which is a dynamic type of NFT on Solana. And I'm like, you know, why why is Ethereum stolen, right? Like, is there some technological gap that uh, will enable a lot more interesting things uh, with NFTs? And, and this running Solidity in the browser could be one of them. Maybe the NFT authors will be able to add a, interesting UI interactions to their NFTs that is all written in Solidity. So it's you know, all in their sort of zone and comf- uh, comfort zone and doesn't require huge leaps and investments in technology. And yeah, maybe that will enable a whole bunch of new projects. Yeah, I really like that. That um, I mean, I, th- I think it's kind of like a similar value prop that, that Foundry has, right? Is that, um, you know, you should be writing your tests in Solidity, right? Because whenever you write them in JavaScript, there's a lot of just kind of, I mean, obviously there's a lot of boilerplate, but there's a lot of like, you know, JavaScript doesn't really support this. So you have to use a library that uses another library and, oh, you know, exactly. it, it spirals. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, Foundry is a really big inspiration point for this project. And specifically, I hang out in in a few like uh, guilds and, and um, uh, discords that are mostly full of like experienced developers and so much joy uh, was there when, when they discovered uh, Foundry and they started using it. It's like, hey, you don't no longer need to depend on not only JavaScript as a separate language, but all the tools and, and installation hurdles that come with it. So that was a huge relief. And I'm, you know, this revalidated, I guess, the idea that um, building UI in Solidity might be a viable thing. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that actually makes a lot of sense now. Cool, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, um, but I, I like this idea, though, with like a meme kind of propagating and, and getting a foot in the door, right? So now I have an opportunity to explain myself and, and, and give more context. And you're like, oh, hey, you know, maybe that's more interesting. So that's, that's, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and maybe one one more like uh, you know, quick quick thing before we before we wrap up this topic. Actually, on a I guess on a similar note, um, so somebody we actually had him on the podcast recently. Um, Dawson's a guy's name. I think it's Dawes.eth. But we uh, we actually in in um, at DevCon we like met up and we were talking a little bit. And he's like, dude, so Foundry can do like FFI, right? Like, what? Why don't we just do like server side Solidity? Like, I know it's it's totally like we shouldn't do this at all, you know. But it's like. I don't know. Maybe one day we'll just we'll just have like the entire stack is just in solidity, right? We could have a front end in solidity, back end in solidity, smart contracts, all of it. It's, <laughs> it's and, crazy. and you know, yeah, yeah. And uh, people will will hate solidity for all the complications and tooling the way people hate in JavaScript right now, right? Like it's it's gonna you know if it's successful, it's gonna reach this cycle again. But um, yeah, that's you know that that's fun if if it helps somebody to build the backend things in in solidity and use FFI like. Sure, you know. History doesn't doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? Solidity is right. a new JavaScript. 
Well, we'll see. We'll see. We definitely will. Now, I, I, I'm with you guys on the, you know, ho- hopefully we can, we can have just more Web3 native tool chains, right? Instead of having to rely on a bunch of React and JavaScript things. So I'm, I, I'm with you there. Uh, you, so you mentioned uh, uh, some of the things that Solana is doing around dynamic NFTs. Winter, you're big on on uh, SVGs on chain and actually like putting token data on chain instead of relying on like just a standard uh, URL to point to in the token URI. Um, do you think how important do you think it is to to put all of that data on chain? Do you think we're we're at risk right now? And I've seen you tweet a little bit about this, but do you think we're at risk right now of the NFT space just being too centralized, you know, permanently? Uh, do you think we need to put more data on chain? Like, how do you how do you view this this tension between the convenience of OpenSea uh, and uh, actual decentralization? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Actually, I think uh, regarding decentralization, whatever the uh, data is on chain or off chain doesn't really matter in 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 some way. And I'll explain a little more about this, but. I feel like the most important part of this is that the party that you mentioned is OpenSea, right? Um, the technology is open and available and it's decentralized under the hood, but there are um, things like wallets and, and uh, marketplaces, including OpenSea, that kind of gained a huge portion of the market. And now as an NFT creator, I'm not only working against the NFT specification, which is permissionless, it's published and it's there, uh, I'm also working against uh, OpenSea and other marketplaces. So, for example, one of the projects I worked on, which is pushing that boundary watch faces, it's um, it stores everything on chain and it generates the image dynamically on chain. So when you transfer things over, like it reads the latest data and the image is always up to date. But a big challenge of that was actually making sure that it renders properly on OpenSea, right? Technically, the um, the token URI was correct and up to the standard but you know OpenSea has a preview with the specific size which spec doesn't show anything about and we spent quite a bit of time trying to make sure that it works pretty in OpenSea because now all the wallets and and a bunch of other things oftentimes use OpenSea's APIs to display the metadata they don't fetch the metadata themselves they talk to this API server so to me the centralization aspect of it is not about the on-chain or off-chain it's more about like this having this gigantic whales in in the universe of api that basically centralize access to things and you could think the same way about like infura or alchemy right like they they occupied a lot of market um and and mind share so to the point where new developers they just think that's how you you know interact with ethereum network is like you have to create an infura account or alchemy account which is not true right like the you could use pretty much any um service provider so um yeah, I'm a little concerned about decentralization in, in, in that space. And it reminds me of the browser wars of, you know, 90s and, and 2000s, where, um, you know, not only you have to build your website, but you also need to make sure that your website works great on, you know, Firefox, Internet Explorer, Opera, and, and a bunch of other browsers. Um, and it's not a trivial task. And, it you know, um, we, with the Google advancement and WebKit and other things, you can see that now, you know, there is spec and there is also WebKit and, and these things, you know, you don't know which one is, is primary because uh, they kind of influence each other so much and, and uh, Google owns so much of the um, web mindshare that that's the centralization that I'm concerned about. 
And um, in regards of storing stuff on chain, I feel like it's a very clever technological achievement. It's very non-trivial to do that, right? So if it was easy, everybody would do that. So uh, when you look at the projects that are on chain, you you kind of know that they are next level in a way, right? Like they are they are apart from other projects because the developers actually put ten times more effort to making it run on chain, and and that's that's a non-trivial thing. Um, another aspect that I love is that you know my long bet is that Ethereum will become the foundation for the financial system in the global world, and. In that case, the block space itself will become more and more expensive. So projects that are currently on-chain, they kind of cement themselves. Like uh, I had this analogy with the Central Park in New York City, right? Like it, they they occupy that part and they create something beautiful and um, that block space is, is already there and it's not going to go away. So um, there is something of the permanence of it that I think is cool. It's also cool because I run a, a local node uh, at my home and um, I know that parts of my projects live on that node, which is also um, sounds really cool. But to the consumer, it's really hard to explain the benefits of this. And I feel like the market didn't really um, price in the on-chain or off-chain aspect of projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think some people think about it, but you know, I, I think it also, it, it, it does matter, right? Block space, you know, if we're all right, block space is going to become increasingly valuable and to, to occupy a piece of that is, is a powerful thing. Um, mm-hmm. And also like a notion of running something forever. I had this, like yeah. before discovering Ethereum, I had this sort of uh, a puzzle that I always struggled. I, I constantly built side projects and some of them died, some of them were pretty successful. But um, to me, it's like, the ultimate puzzle was like, how do I make something that can outlive me, right? Like if I lose my credit card or, you know, decide to call it quits and move to, you know, um, Latin America or something like that. And, you know, my AWS will expire. My Heroku instances will will eventually sort of run out of budget, etc. Um, and Ethereum is the only thing so far that I know that kind of feed like um, funds itself. So you can build projects that outlive you or anyone else. And building projects on chain has this property where like watch faces or any other projects that live there, they will live there forever. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have to worry about your credit card being expired or your pinata not being pinned anymore, right? Totally, totally. No, it, it, it's very cool. Um, you mentioned though that, that putting everything on chain is hard. Mm-hmm. Right, it requires a level of skill that not everybody has. Right. Um, so, one question I wanted to ask you: this is this is like a little, a little bit related to like actually leveling up as a developer and just being a good developer in general. Um, but like, let's say you're advising an NFT project team who really, you know, they have like basic level solidity skills, right? Mm-hmm. They don't, they haven't done any gas optimization. Uh, they've just done kind of like a first iteration of a contract, and before they decide to deploy it, they come to you and they say, "Hey." Uh, Winter, can you look at this? You obviously have a lot of skill. Uh, what do you think? What do you think we should do? How do you advise a team like that to first start looking at at optimizations and design patterns and and, and gas golfing? Right. Um, that's that's a great question. I would, I guess, start with just you know asking for their story, like understanding what they care about. Because as a developer, it's easy to sort of be in a box where uh, there is a right answer and the wrong answer. And, you know, you just need to pick the right answer and it's obvious. Um, In life, things are more complicated. Like I advise some projects 
uh, where they're like, hey, Winter, please, you know, build us a contract. We'll pay you whatever you want. And, you know, this is the things. And as I explored their story and understood their use cases better, I actually advised them not to hire me, but to use this contract builder thing that already exists. And in, in this case, it's like, I love kind of digging into the story and why and why people care about these things. And, you know, it, th there is a famous story of Yuga Labs that just don't care about gas too much. And, you know, the people still pay these high prices and it's fine, right? So maybe for them, it just doesn't matter. Um, so you have to understand what, what people care about and uh, kind of align the technology towards that, what they care about. But assuming they care about, you know, same things and, and they want the project um, in the interest of community and they want it um, to be efficient and they want it to um, sort of generate um, positive um, uh, positive emotions and, and not be too expensive on minting perspective, etc. Um, the first thing that I look always is um, actually two things. One is an, an embarrassing story and another one is more practical. The, the first embarrassing thing is... Um, at, the, at, at some point, when you create a hard head um, project, its default settings don't enable um, optimizer in Solidity. So that's how I built my first project. And I was instantly hit with some size limits and some insane gas costs. And I spent too many days trying to address them until I figured out that I actually didn't have optimizer on. So that would be the first thing to turn on and, and, and let them know that, hey, this, this needs to be turned on so that they get a realistic sort of assessment of what, what things are. And then the second thing, which is way more practical and, and common, is looking at the storage. Um, storage has this trade-off. It's the most expensive thing on Ethereum, but it's also a very convenient thing. So um, there is also no right or wrong answer. You have to understand what they care about storing and what they don't care about storing and kind of create um, clever and, and, and smart ways of using that space. So, uh, you know, very simple thing is like, if they store a bunch of data about a token, let's see if we can pack this data into something that is much smaller, right? Using tight structs uh, and, and bit shifts and stuff like that. Um, another thing is um, seeing which data can live off chain. So maybe you don't need to store, like for example, the Merkle tree, right? Like you don't need to store all the list of addresses, you just need to store the root of it. And then you can use cryptography to prove that this thing is part of that thing. So things like that, um, you know, settings, then then evaluate in storage and then understand in sort of, um, I guess, other lower opportunities. But this the storage part basically outweighs everything else uh, that, that they do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. It's good to look for the 80% of things or the 20% the of things that will have 80% of the impact. And right. looking at storage is, is a good example of that. What about security? How do you personally look at smart contract security? Yeah, security is scary. Like, um, you know, coming from the Web2 background and, and building a, a lot of backend systems back in the day, it's, you know, backend is something you can always change. You can always submit a patch, submit a thing, uh, you know, mitigate, migrate data. If your data is lost, you can like recover it from a backup and stuff like that. So there is a lot of safety guards but um, Ethereum model is different. Ethereum model, uh, usually you have an immutable um, contract that once deployed, it's just there. You cannot, um, you know, change it. There is upgraded story, but that's separate. And then another thing is, um, um, you know, the values. 
the value, the money, is, is basically a primitive data type on Ethereum, unlike Web3, or unlike Web2, where like, you know, you would have a token from Stripe or something like that. So um, it's, it's actually very scary. And I think I spend like 80% of my time when I build a smart contract on testing and, and understanding kind of how it runs. So um, for one of the projects, Rings for Loot, I remember I spent maybe north of 90% on writing tests, comprehensive tests that like test all different scenarios and stuff. So um, that's, um, that's um, a, a lot of time thinking about this stuff. But then uh, another super useful thing that I done before is I asked my friends who are also Solidity developers to take a look at my contract. And it's actually very surprising how many things we kind of don't notice if we work on our own thing. And then you show it to somebody else and it's not even a full-fledged audit or anything like that. But they are able to sort of pattern match some things and notice things that you don't notice. So definitely showing this to um, other people is is a very good idea. And then last thing that I wanted to mention in this kind of smart contract security uh, field is that, um, you know, many... Um, non-crypto, many crypto um, um, complaints or uh, criticism comes from these hacks and, and things where people lost their money. And, you know, like that is painted as a terrible, terrible thing. When I look at this, I'm actually, I, I think this is brilliant. I think the sort of the model that Ethereum has right now, even with the hacks, is still really, really awesome. Because the alternative, I've lived through the alternatives in many big companies. They have this security team that takes six months to kind of get on their on their like waiting list and then they kind of show up and they do some stuff and there are some tasks. And like, it's a very mundane process. There is open source, open um, uh, hacker one thing where like people can submit vulnerabilities, but that, you know, usually becomes very spammy and the rewards are not that big. But if you look at crypto, it's basically unbounded bounty program that runs all the time, 24-7. And incentive structure is built in a way where if you have an exploit, you you really want to use that exploit ASAP because somebody else can find exploit sooner and get all the money. So when I see all these expensive hacks, I think this is great. I think like, hey, you know, the future systems will just not have this bug, you know, and basically the system becomes anti-fragile where it hardens as people attack it. And then, you know, within 10 years, um, if you continue doing that, like the chance of finding a new vulnerability that wasn't found before actually goes down quite a bit. And you have this probabilistic uh, insurance of sort that, you know, this system works, especially if you compare it to the alternatives that we have right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't remember who it was that said this, but uh, I said... um... You know, any any protocol that stores tokens is basically a non-consensual bug bounty, right? And it's, yep. you know, it's like funny, but it's, I think I think it's very much true that, you know, like you said, like you, you basically like, you force so many people into, into writing better code and, and writing better tests and, you know, being able to reason about what they're doing and, and really simplifying, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, you know, come to think of it, I don't think I ever wrote any serious tests before smart contracts, right? Because I mean, it's, you know, you know, like, like you mentioned, right? Like if, if you push a bug to, let's say a mobile app, right? Okay, we'll just rebuild the thing, maybe 20 minutes. And then, you know, just, just push the, uh, you know, push the difference, right? Like push, push right. the new version of it and, and everything's fine. And 
again, like, you know, people can sit on these vulnerabilities for a long, long time, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, like when, whenever we see these like CVEs that, like I, I think OpenSSL just, um, there's like a big, you know, critical uh, vulnerability that was like just patched either today or maybe it's going to be tomorrow that the patch comes out, right? But like that zero day could have been around for years, right? Somebody could have found mm-hmm. that years ago and have just sat on it. Um, whereas, you know, in, in a smart contract, like as soon as you find it, like even even on the white hat side, right? Obviously I haven't been on on the, you know, sort of black hat side of this, but even on the white hat side, like I find your vulnerability. I'm like, oh my God, I need to, I need to like get on the phone with them right now, mm-hmm. right? Because it could be, it could be literally any second that somebody else has also found that. So yeah, I, th- I think in that regard, it does really force you to like, you know, think deeply about security and, and act as fast as possible. Right. And uh, to this point, the tokens that go up in price really high or really low, right? Like they contribute to this hardening of things. So like you can complain about the speculation and all these things that go to the moon and then crash. But in my mind, it's like, hey, if a contract holds this many tokens and their value like becomes a thousand or a million times more, well, you know, the hackers are now more likely to look and scrutinize this contract and find vulnerabilities and stuff like that. So, you know, it it, it hardens the system even further. Yeah, the analogy to like an anti-fragile system, I think is actually kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, there's no there's no like like traditional technology or big tech version of the Samsung you up text, right? Like no one no one's gonna take like if you get a text from someone like Samsung or like someone else in the space who is a white hat, like you do get on that immediately. There's no there's no six month review process, mm-hmm. right? It's it's immediate. Uh it's immediate. Yep. Um Great advice. Great advice. So one, one, one question we get a lot from people that, that listen to the show or that we talk to about the show is, you know, they, they want to understand how to level up as a Solidity developer, right? They want to know how our guests approach their own development. And I guess mm-hmm. one thing I'd just love to ask you is, like, what have you personally done to level up as an engineer throughout your career? I mean, I think it would just be good to ask you in general. Um, I'm curious. Yep. Um, I guess... The first thing before you even start this, it's it's important to understand what drives you um, and your learning style. And, I, you know, I've given this advice to many people the way I learn things and it just doesn't work for some, right? Like some people have a different motivation or they have different things that excite them. And I feel like the more, the older you get or the, the more you progress, it's even more important to understand what is your learning style? What, like, how do you learn better, right? And my case, I learn through building. So I'll, it's much easier for me to learn something if I'm either rebuilding it from scratch or using it. Um, I, I like videos and I like other content that is like on the periphery, but I almost treat it as a, you know, very low uh, value thing that just is put in the box that sometimes can produce an interesting idea. But, um, you know, having learned these things about myself now helps me kind of up level even faster because I know what what drives me. So, you know, and it's kind of hard question uh, to answer even for yourself if you would think about like, you know, what what drives me. And uh, many people who sign up for the EVM course and the first question I ask them is like, why do you want to do this? And, you know, some people actually struggle. They're like, oh, you know, I'm curious and I just want to learn things. And that just doesn't strike me as a strong motivation. And uh, it's it's a almost like 100% correlation that these people drop off faster. They're like, you know, I, the life came up and I needed to do this or that. And it's, it's totally understandable. But at the same time, it's like, hey, you know, you could have spent that time actually doing something that, um, you know, 
moves you forward. So that understanding is important. And then um, it's also important to be in the community of people who push you forward. Um, like um, when you're at a job, for example, and, and you want to get better at something, there are two ways, actually. One is you could, you know, spend your free time watching videos or going to conferences and and learning about stuff. But that is just not not going to work. I, I, I did that in my previous career um, or like in, in, in the past. I, I used to build desktop apps in, um, in some programming languages for corporate stuff. And I dreamed of uh, building iPhone apps and, and I would read their documentation, watch their talks. But that was kind of low, um, low outcome. And then I quit my desktop building job and, and found a startup that paid like 30% of my salary. Um, and but I was basically in the mix of it. The expectation was that I would uh, exercise the skills. And, and that basically skyrocketed my, my trajectory because I felt like, you know, every day I come in and I'm stretched. I, I need to learn these things to, to make progress for, for my work stuff. And in that environment, you learn just so much faster. Um, so you can, you can think of it as like, hey, if you want to learn pi- pi- piano, right? Like, would you learn faster if you did it on the weekends or would you learn faster if you sign up for a band and you have you know a concert coming up in a month right like when 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 the thing becomes a tool um, and means to to an end you you end up mastering it much faster because you're really motivated so that's you know that's my super general advice and then if you're already a senior engineer and you worked in tech and you kind of want to learn stuff I highly, highly recommend buying books, courses, videos, etc. If you look at the prices, they're really cheap compared to your hourly rate and the value you get from it is much higher. Like even if that course has, you know, materials mostly found online and compiled, it's still there is a lot of value in having that sequence um, presented to you versus you doing your own research and spending, you know, much, many, many, many more hours kind of assembling it. So you know, once you have the means, I definitely highly recommend just, you know, purchasing um, good materials and, and up level in this way. Yeah, that's really good advice. I've always found that for myself as well, that whenever I'm in a situation where I have to learn the thing, I, I definitely get better at it. Whereas everything else where I tell myself I'm going to do something on the side, you know, it, it's hit or miss, right? It's, it's definitely not reliable. So I, I definitely mm-hmm. relate to that big time, big time. Yep. Uh, tell us about the EVM course. You mentioned the EVM course. People, uh, when I asked, you know, them what I should ask you, they they asked about the EVM course. So, can you introduce yeah. our listeners to what that is and provide some color? It it all started from my previous idea with implementing EVM for the browser so that you could do fun things. Um, and as I was working through that, I noticed that the hardest part is not implementation. The implementation is actually really straightforward. The EVM itself is beautifully, elegantly simple and powerful. And uh, what's what's hard is actually coming up with unit tests and, you know, figuring out what needs to happen exactly and like which edge cases to test was, was a lot of time. So um, I think I've spent like two weeks uh, working on the EVM implementation in TypeScript. And I've noticed that like I wanted to refactor it, and as I did with unit tests, it was it was joy. It was it was it was such a fun experience because all the unit tests are already were written, and I would just make one thing at a time. So like it would start with a simple opcode parsing, and then it works, and then it's like implement push, and then implement pop, and then like going through that is just 
you know, it has this flow state almost enforced on you where like you don't have to think too much on what to do. You have exactly a thing in front of you and then it gives you a sense of progress. So as I was working on that, I had an idea of like, hey, maybe, you know, if I found this valuable, maybe other people will find this valuable too. So I posted it on Firecaster and, and found my first batch of like 20 people who signed up and and went through the course. And, uh, you know, um, some of them dropped out, some of them actually went to the end. But it's such a joy for me to kind of come into the Discord server we, uh, where we coordinate these things and, and see their progress, right? They post this thing. It's like, I, I managed to squeeze this in in 15 minutes break today and it was so much fun. Like I get three tests running and it, like, you know, I feel like if people have this emotion uh, that they experience of joy and, and, and happiness when they implement this very complex technical thing, it, it's it's just a better thing for the world where like more people will understand EVM and, you know, more interesting application come, will come out of it. Because w- when I found EVM and, and seeing the projects that I built, well, we're not even stretching um, it so far, right? Like we're not pushing the boundaries of what EVM can do yet. So yeah, so that's the course. I um, it, it's still not released because I'm still working on making it much smoother. Um, and um, yeah, I, uh, I I hope to publish it sometime in in this month. I love it. There's a landing page right at ev evmcourse.com. Is that right? Yes, correct. Uh, I, I didn't want to turn this into a shilling session. Uh, <laughs> this not, course is not for everyone, etc. But if you're interested, definitely sign up. Uh, I'll send you an email when it's ready. And I'll also try to explain um, as much as I can who this course is for and who this course is not for. Because the last thing I want is to like overpromise and sell you something that you don't really need, right? And and that's the thing about like the whole ethical building in, in Web3 that I can talk about later, where, um, you know, a lot of projects uh, nowadays out there, they, they're very upfront of like, hey, you know, buy this so you'll miss out. Um, and I, I guarantee you about the EVM course, you'll not miss out. Like it's, it's always going to be there and I'm always going to be, be improving it. So, you know, there is hopefully there is no form on that on that front. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely people listening that that I think would just like it. So it's good that we, we talked about it for a little bit. Um, and I also like your your thought process on having things cl- clearly laid out that you can work on instead of having to like also at the same time decide what to work on or what to practice. I think that's mm-hmm. actually a good insight. That's really what you pay for, I think, when you're paying for a course. Uh, yep. I'm with you there. So you mentioned a second ago this thing some of us builders have in Web3 where it's it's kind of like marketing feels a little off to us. You know, we don't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've worked like in sales and stuff, so I'm like I'm a little more comfortable with it. Like I came to the more technical side of things. Uh, a little bit later, actually, after I learned like just some basic business stuff, but I, I can mm-hmm. definitely relate to that that sentiment of, you know, this this space has a lot of a lot of shills, a lot of sleazy marketing, and a lot of just stuff that I I, I don't think is always great behavior. I I've seen you mm-hmm. put out some content on this about how you've how you've kind of navigated this sort of thing, and I'd love for you to expand on it here because I think you have some really interesting insights. Yeah, uh, thank you. And uh, uh, like that was one of the most favorite and retweeted tweet I think that uh, I posted in the last six months or so. So felt like it definitely, definitely resonated with people. In that, I said that um, honest builders or ethical builders in Web three um, 
in the current market are at severe disadvantage um, because they, they just don't do what other projects do to sort of attract customers. They, they hate chilling, they hate marketing overall. Um, you know, they, they don't employ any sketchiness or, or like token rewards or any other things that kind of, um, you know, in, inflict the value of the project. Um, they definitely don't want to overpromise things um, or publish a roadmap and then just don't stick to it. It gives them a lot of anxiety for not delivering on their promise or letting people down. And then this other people that the culture has formed in Web3 where like people always look for rugs and, and you know, take their every opportunity to sort of complain and 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 um, introduce some fear in the community about the project. And like ethical builders usually take it to heart and it makes them super stressed. And I know this from my personal experience. I feel like I'm in this category. I'm also in a few communities that are in the same category, like super talented, very cool developers, designers, builders, marketers that all feel kind of like uneasy with the current narratives that get popular in Web3. And you know, that's that's very discomforting. And um, um, I, I have a few comments. Like after posting that, I I've think I've developed a few things that um, kind of expanded on that thought process. And um, one is that the noise you hear is um, usually the promoted noise. And, and that by definition is going to be, uh, have a shill, like shill vibes to it. Um, because that's, you know, that's how the information propagates and, and, and that's how it works. Um, so kind of, you have to, consciously overcorrect for that and, and know that people who used marketing agency or the sold account or like Twitter account that have, you know, thousands of followers, they like the types of projects they promote are usually not the type of projects that, that you, you want to work on. Then the other thing that um, I've learned is that um, there is a concept of non-coercive mar- marketing and it's a new thing. If you just Google non-coercive marketing, you will... Um, uh, you will find a bunch of uh, articles by by this person who kind of discovered the same thing, which is like they um, knew about marketing and how it works and, you know, funnels and numbers and conversion rates, and it all felt wrong for them. And instead, they uh, kind of created this memo where they treat the customer as a whole, like customer doesn't need your product, really. They are good as they are. You don't need to like provide, you know, limited time deals or in any other ways, trying to curse them into buying your thing. But instead, you're just being very sincere and, and trying to build a trustful relationship. And if there is a time that is right when they want to purchase this thing, that will come out naturally. But you just kind of give up control on that. And uh, to me, it really resonated. I, I felt like that's that's my style and that's how I feel about building projects. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm employing that. Um, another advice that um, I've seen... Um, and I've given to people, I guess, is that, um, you know, you don't have to build something that has a 10K PFP and immediately successful. Like, you, if you start with something really small that has like NFT collection of three or five and, and or, you know, a, a small project that targets like a tiny, tiny community, um, you will find your customers and, and this these customers will give you some positive emotions and, and some reassurance. So, you know, when you you just don't have to, you don't need to compare yourself to this, um, you know, spam 10K PFP projects that, that flooded uh, the internet um, six months ago, right? You you can, there is definitely, definitely a lot of room for authentic builders who um, can build stuff for a small community at first, and then you kind of scale it up a little bit by a little bit. But um, 
yeah, I, I feel like, uh, <clears throat> you know, maybe um, financially, you are less um, likely to have amazing outcome if you don't employ these tactics. But at the same time, in the long run, you will definitely uh, be ahead just by feeling great about your work, by having people who really care about your work. Um, and that's way more valuable than like the immediate bottom line that you uh, draw on your project. So um, yeah, I feel like the honest builders and ethical builders in Web3 actually have an edge. They just haven't discovered it yet. Yeah. Um, I think there's definitely something to be said for these grassroots teams that, or, or even just people, right? That, you know, they just come along and, and there's not really much intention to, you know, sell a thing or, you know, be, be the next, you know, like billion dollar startup, right? You know, they just, they want to build something that they want to see. And, you know, I just, I don't know that there's something that, that like really works with that and really work and, and really resonates with, you know, a lot of, especially the developer community, but you know, the crypto community in general, yeah, I mean, because exactly. that, that's what all this is, right. Is like decentralized mm -hmm. and like, you know, let individuals kind of, um, you know, let individuals kind of like try to take control and, and do their own thing. Right. And, and I, and I love that about this space. It, you know, you see it in other places in technology as well, but I haven't seen it as like common as I see it in crypto. Mm -hmm, for sure. And you just cannot fake it. Like if you're having lots of fun time building something like it will come through it in, in, in many ways, in many factors, but, um, you know, you, you, and, and that's the edge I think that the ethical builders have is that like they have this unfakeable intrinsic desire to build things that haven't been built before. And, and, uh, they, they take a lot of pride and joy in building this thing. So, you know, whatever, uh, the, the marketing of big companies, they will not be able to replicate the same thing. So, um, definitely use that that edge. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally, totally. A uh, couple other questions for you before we wrap up mm -hmm. today. I know we're coming up on time a little bit, but one thing we also like we like to ask everyone who comes on is whether or not you have any favorite optimizations or design patterns that you've implemented in one of your projects that you'd love to to call out that you're particularly proud of. Uh, we we sent you over a doc with some questions, and it looks like you have a couple. I'd love for you to expand on what those are yeah yeah i was you know i i can't say i'm proud of like you know when i discovered these things I, I i find them amusing but that's not something that i would put in my resume or say like you know i'm the author of this idea um it's just uh but you know i i i, I was thinking about this question i guess for a good part of the week after you've sent it um and and i have a few so um, one thing that i really enjoyed working on is the erc 1155u and and that was for one of the uh, collections that i've made and i felt like i've done like i i've made almost gas optimal nft implementation that still kind of confirms to these things it's uh using 1155 instead of 721 because 1155 allows you to get away with just uh with less um um, with less storage. So it's just one SS store and it also can hold a bunch of extra data that packs in the space um, that um, is not used by your address uh, as an owner of the token. So I felt like that was a very satisfying way of discovering basically the bare bones implementation. And when I posted about it, I, I've, I found another person who kind of reached very similar conclusions, um, you know, maybe a month earlier than me. Um, that I haven't seen. And and that was kind of fun. It was like, we, we found this um, thing and we thought really deeply about the storage. Um, another thing that was really fun was Rings, Rings for Loot. Um, that one is a permissionless mint, fully on-chain. And it basically encoded a very sophisticated supply of um, rings 
uh, in the binary data and in the very compressed format that I remember working really hard on getting it right. And, and you know, that was a very sophisticated project. Um, and the last thing that I want to mention um, is not my invention, but things that I feel like is underutilized in specifically in the NFT space is signed means. So you've seen, um, you know, how people get on the um, allow list by submitting their address, some uh, projects implemented by uh, using Merkle trees or um, like um, putting the addresses on chain and all of that stuff is really expensive and it's very inflexible. And um, NFT minting, like in the project's lifecycle, the project, um, you know, has a limited uh, supply that takes only a small percentage of time right and everything else that happens to the project is is after that so i feel like a technique that is underutilized is signed meets where uh, you have an um, private key on the server that doesn't have any funds but it signs um, the mint request and then the contract can verify that the uh, minting call was signed by the trusted server and that allows the contract to trust things like price or token id or other things which means that, you know, you could give a discount for somebody or you could change the logic of minting or you could burn that wallet and uh, essentially like limit the supply at what it is right now. So uh, I feel like the signed means approach is, is pretty underutilized in the space and it saves a ton of gas because you don't need to um, store pretty much anything on, uh, on chain. So um, yeah, those are three things. Nice. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that signed means approach uh, we'll have to get links. You have to send us links to to like a like a repo for each of those things. We can we can link them in our show notes because I think people will want to go check them out. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, couple more, couple more here. Actually, there's 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 one or two that I forgot. One thing that that I was personally curious about is you know coming from like the traditional, like I said, big tech world. You know, you worked at Meta. What do some of your your friends that are still working at Meta or other places in San Francisco in traditional technology, what do they think of what we're doing? Are they curious about it? Uh, are they like, wow, that this stuff is the work of the devil, <laughs> like some people seem to think? Mm-hmm. Like, what's what's your take on on how they how they see this industry? Yeah, um, I guess most of my friends who work who still work in big tech, they're um, they're pretty much Hacker News piled and, and Hacker News is relatively, um, um, you know, anti-crypto. And that's that's basically their whole exposure is they, you know, read these things, read the media and they're like, oh, you know, this is a scam. And then uh, I mentioned to a few people that, hey, you know, I've built a few NFT projects and they're like, are you rich or are you a scammer? You know, like uh, neither of these things. Um, and they, they just don't don't see it. And I was thinking about this for a long time is like why you know why are they slipping on ethereum and everything that happens in blockchain and um i feel like i have a theory actually and that has to do with 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 just getting old um like people who are in my circle in in facebook or other places they you know they are senior staff staff plus engineers who have been in the industry for like 10 years or more and they have seen these cycles they have seen a framework come up gain popularity die down another framework come up you know gain popularity die down and they've been on some of these rides like some of them have been huge ruby on rails fans and drove this train up and down somewhere like huge react fans or like you know backbone or the there are many, many frameworks and, and things in this, or like uh, no SQL databases, right? Like they've seen these cycles. And after having seen many, many of these cycles, you kind of 
like it's very hard to not get cynical and, and they get cynical they look at the stuff as like oh well you know another database that is like super expensive to write to you know just use postgres or whatever and and like they basically dismiss dismiss the idea and they don't have even energy to look into the stuff they you know they have their bills to pay they have their job to do and you know um, a lot of what involves in in big tech right now maybe it's going to change uh, soon but you know coasting or like creating a visibility of action that um, that the company can recognize and you know that that just doesn't lend itself into a mindset that will allow you to sort of appreciate these things and kind of dive deeper in them. However, there are some people who have experienced all that, but then, uh, like myself, had an opportunity to sort of pierce through that um, skepticism and um, cynicism and and just look at the tech. And what I have discovered was very similar to how I discovered computing and and internet. And it just feels fun. Like it it feels like something very novel um, in, in many ways that is hard to explain to other people. And, you know, back in the day, internet was really hard to explain to people. I, I remember trying to do that for my grandma and I just failed. I couldn't, under, like she couldn't comprehend it. And I, I feel like in, in crypto, it's kind of similar where like there is a bubble of people who understand it. There is a larger bubble of people who speculate on it. And then there is a gigantic bubble of people who have no idea and have no understanding. And yeah, once I discovered that, I, you know, I found a lot of parallels. Uh, I found a bunch of super smart people who work in the space and have, you know, utmost respect for them and look up to them. And yeah, you know, stayed up late, deploying contracts, waiting for the gas fees to go down, like reminded me using the internet in the early days where the internet was really, really expensive. And I had to wait until midnight because there was some discount on that. And like this, these things kind of resonated and, and I see it and um, I want to be in the space for for this because I know that this time won't last forever, right? Like once it's productionalized and taken over big corps, it, it's just not going to be as fun anymore. So I feel like this is a, you know, still golden time in, 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 this, in this industry. I love that. I love that. How about on the other side, right? So how about for the people that are very crypto native, uh, that are on board. They're like, this is the coolest thing ever, right? They're, they feel just like you, but they don't have the experience in technology that you, you have, where you have seen some of these cycles, right? You've seen, you, you're not cynical, which is good, kudos to you, but you, you have seen things rise and fall. What do you think that most people that are like the crypto native types, what do, what do you think they don't understand? Well, they, they don't understand that like a lot of, um, like the technology merits and its success are not super correlated. They are correlated, but they're not, it's not causation, right? Like something succeeds not because um, it's it's a superior technology. It succeeds because of all sorts of random reasons and, and, and fail for the same thing. And, you know, it's it's kind of a failure to think that, oh, hey, you know, this technology is superior, therefore it must be more valuable and it's definitely going to win. I don't think that's the case. Um, Looking at um, like how um, you know the cycles go is like usually there is a cycle that creates a lot of monetary value and then that spawns a lot of VC interest that spawns a lot of companies that hire a lot of devs and this has a huge momentum and these devs like are working through the bear market because that's the momentum that brought them in here and they will work on this for like a couple of years but there is really no guarantee of success like there are many many factors outside of the technology control that will not, um, you know, uh, you you can't predict whatever it's going to be 
true or false, right? And and many people may try to make these predictions of like, you know, where where is our industry going to be in 10 years? Like, this is so exciting. Everything is going to be distributed, etc. And I always remember this advertisement from 1960s of like, hey, you know, in in, in 1990s, we're going to have flying cars and, and going to be living on Mars and, and things like that. And it's just very natural for the human being to like take the experience they have right now and their experience from yesterday and kind of extrapolate linearly forward and say like, oh, you know, this is where the future is versus the way technology and everything else works is that it's usually very sublinear, right? Like it's it's exponential or it's decaying exponentially. And these changes, you just cannot predict and you cannot... Um, orient yourself well. So I feel like people who are excited about crypto, um, you know, definitely use that excitement um, to learn, to learn more, to like get your skills more valuable, to dive deeper, to dig deeper, to create some novel stuff. But also keep in mind that things will fail. Like there is a very high chance that this is not going to work out. So stick with it if you are having fun, if you feel like that gives you energy to learn more. And um yeah, and and don't hold your breath if if this turns out to be zero value in in the long run. Like that, that is a real possibility. I love it. Some high quality grounded advice right there. But if you're having fun, it's it's still all worth it. Uh, that's good. Exactly. You like as as long as you're learning, um, that's that's still worth it. Totally. Last question for you, and this gets into some of what you just said. But you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned it's tough to tell where anything goes in 10 years, but what do you hope our industry looks like in 10 years? We like to ask everyone, this is kind of the final question. I, I love your take on that as well. Yeah, I um, I hope that um, Ethereum or something like Ethereum that has the same values and, and um, same FS uh, becomes a foundation for a lot of things in the world, including finance, um, governance, and other things. And, um, you know, in the success case, uh, people would not even know they're using Ethereum or anything like that. They would not have to know or care. It would just be, you know, how nowadays people go on Facebook without knowing anything about internet service providers or protocols or HTTPS or, you know, anything like that. They just like, I go to my Facebook. And uh, I feel like, you know, a success for crypto in 10 years that I'm betting on is... uh, you know, it becoming this uh, railroad system for the world to to transact and and do finance um, that uh, most people will not be familiar with or like will not need to know too much about. But um, as as a devs, we would have a like a very good overview and insight into things, and we will be able to have an outsized impact on on the world just by building a better system, by improving things, by you know making contracts more secure, finding vulnerabilities. Um, coming up with new programming languages, running EVM on the browser or letting everyone implement their own EVM or what have you, right? Like any contribution in that space, if that technology becomes a foundation, is going to be a net positive for the the world. I love it. That's a fantastic answer. So Winter, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you online? Where would you like to point people? Yeah, just my Twitter, I guess. That's that's where I hang out. That's what I'm having most fun. So uh, my DMs are also open. So if you just want to drop a few lines, feel free to. I try to answer everybody every time. So yeah. I love it. We'll put a link to your, your Twitter account in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic episode and we hope you have a good rest of your day. Cool. Yeah, I, I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, man.